Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. Now we're going to turn to our very last act that we'll be looking at in our, in our discussions, and that is the Supreme Court General Civil Procedure Rules 2015. And though it may be a while since you've done interpretation of legislation studies, especially for those who don't have background in civil proceedings, you'll remember that regulations are subordinate to acts. So the act takes precedence and then the regulations follow. So when it comes to answering a question that discusses civil procedure, the first port of call might be the Civil Procedure Act to be followed by the the rules. Now, I'll take you through each of the examinable provisions of the rules, as you might have noticed from when we discussed the Civil Procedure Act. There's quite a bit of cross-referencing that goes on. So if you're preparing notes as you go, please make sure to tab and link any section that requires cross-referencing. So, for instance, when you get to discovery, you can very quickly cross-reference the provisions of the rules with the provisions of the Civil Procedure Act. And it just saves that little bit of time and it makes your answer appear that little bit more fluent than if you have to source them completely separately. There's a little bit of anxiety about that process which slows you down as well. Now, I'll look at the examinable provisions. I will not look at the the non-examinable provisions. So possibly mercifully for us, you might remember that costs are not examinable except where otherwise provided. So the very long order that deals with the quantification of costs after the fact is happily not examinable. Let's start at the beginning, which is order four. Now, remember, of course, the terminology parts and sections in acts become orders and rules in regulations. So starting with order four process in the court, we're going to mention part one, which is general and nice, easy place to start, and then move on to certification requirements for proceedings, which, of course, will require cross-referencing back to the certification requirements in part 4.1 of the Civil Procedure Act. So looking at the rules, uh, Regulation 4.01 of Order 4 indicates that there's two ways to commence a process in the Supreme Court. It may be commenced by writ or by originating motion. Uh, For any disputed question of fact that involves another party, then you'll commence by writ, as we'll discuss in quite a lot of detail. So originating motions are only used sparingly where there is no disputed question of law and also there's another party. There is no other party to the proceedings. You might think that the originating motion would not be a very attractive vehicle for assessment in the bar exam because it doesn't give rise to any of the requirements for defence or defence and counterclaim or service. So on that basis, let's please focus our attention on writs. 4.02 indicates that an interlocutory application shall be on summons. We'll get to the interlocutory applications that may be made, I believe, in our next discussion. 4.03 obliges the names of parties to be in compliance with the rule, that is the person who commences the proceeding is called a plaintiff and, of course, the person against whom a proceeding is called a defendant. This becomes significant when we quickly move to a counterclaim because in a counterclaim, as will become clear, if the defendant at first instance sues the plaintiff at first instance, then the defendant becomes the plaintiff at second instance. 
So that's the only, that is one of the spots where the use of proper uh, terminology is very important. 4.04 acceptors provided by the two rules that follow an order 58. Every proceeding shall be commenced by writ. So let's uh, look at the exceptions. 4.05 refers to originating motion and the three alternative scenarios which give rise to commencement of process via originating motion instead of writ are listed. One is where there's no defendant to the proceeding. For instance, the classic case is in probate. Secondly, and thirdly, whereby or under any act or the rules, an application is authorised to be made to the court. So you'll note that the circumstances which call for discussion of originating motion are limited, and 4.06 indicates that a proceeding may be commenced by originating motion where it's unlikely there'll be any substantial dispute of fact, and for that reason it's appropriate that there be no pleadings or discovery. So that is for noting. You can imagine, as mentioned, that that would be a pretty unappealing assessment process for the examiner, given that uh, the initiation would not then lead to questions relating to pleadings or discovery. Now, as far as 4.07 is concerned, have a look at that regulation, which I haven't included in full in the notes. So the court may essentially convert a process that is commenced by originating motion to commencement by writ. And 4.08 allows special proceedings in urgent cases. We then move to the parts of the rules that deal with overarching obligations certification. And here, please, we need to cross-reference back to part 4.1, starting with section 41 of the Civil Procedure Act. And just to refresh your memory, section 41 in relation to overarching obligations certification obliged the parties to personally certify that they've read and understood the overarching obligations and the paramount duty. And then 41.2, that overarching obligations certificate needed to be filed with the first substantive document in the civil proceeding filed by the party. And so far, the uh, rules uh, have referred to, of course, the writ originating motion in such a case, but let's focus on the writ. So if a person were to issue proceedings by writ, that would be the first uh, substantive document in the civil proceeding, and therefore that would be the occasion which called for the filing of the overarching obligation certification under Section 41. Regulation 4.09 of the Supreme Court General Civil Procedure Rules prescribes the form of that overarching obligation certification. It's in Form 4A of the rules, and you may wish to cross-reference the form of Form 4A, particularly for your future practice. See Regulation 4.09.1 in relation to specification of periods and cross-reference back to Section 41.5, which dispensed the requirement of a, a represented party who had uh, was involved or had been involved in more than one civil proceeding. That party was dispensed from filing an overarching certificate and 4.09.1 gives effect to the time uh, period to be noted by reference to that provision. We then turn to proper basis certification. So overarching obligation certifications, as you may remember, that obligation rested on the parties. Proper basis certification under Section 42 of the Civil Procedure Act obliged legal practitioners acting for or on behalf of a party to the proceeding to file that proper basis certification on the filing of the party's first substantive document in a civil proceeding. And so far, we're up to a writ. 
and the civil proceeding, sorry, that proper basis certification had to certify that on the factual and legal material available, A, each allegation of fact in the document has a proper basis, B, each denial in the document has a proper basis, and that there's a proper basis for each non-admission in the document. Now, returning to Regulation 4.10 in the rules, note certain exemptions from proper basis certifications, but also Regulation 4.10, subsection, sub-rule 2. For the purpose of this provision, the proper basis certification shall be in Form 4B. And it may be worth at this point revisiting the terms of Section 42 of the Civil Procedure Act, which of course needs to be cross-referenced. So that brings an end to the discussion of Order 4. We now move on to Order 9, which relates to joinder of other parties. Joinder is the terminology referred to if the parties are effectively joined from the outset in that first pleading. If another party needs to be added to the proceeding, then the terminology used by the rules is not joinder. It's called addition, subtraction, substitution of parties. So where we talk about joining and joinder, then traditionally that is from the start, the initiation of proceedings. So Order 9, Regulation 9.01, plaintiff may join any number of claims against a defendant. A, whether the plaintiff makes the claims in the same or in different capacities, and B, whether the claims are made against the defendant in the same or in different capacities. And I'll just take you up to Regulation 9.02, 9.03. At this point, we fork into permissive joinder, which is where persons may be joined, to be followed by compulsory joinder, which we'll get to in a moment. Now, the purpose of 9.01, which I've just discussed, and 9.02, tends to dovetail with the overarching purpose of the Civil Procedure Act. So I'm jumping back and forth a little bit. But you'll remember that the overarching purpose of the Civil Procedure Act was to facilitate certain outcomes, including just efficient, timely and cost-effective resolution of the real issues in dispute. So Regulation 9.01, you can see, which allows all sorts of different claims between the same identified plaintiffs and defendants. And then 9.02, which allows for joinder of other persons as plaintiff or defendants in certain proceedings, may indeed facilitate that overarching purpose specified in Section 7 of the Civil Procedure Act. So then let's visit the terms of 9.02, which may or may not uh, facilitate this overarching purpose. So two or more persons may be joined as plaintiffs or defendants in any proceeding where, and these are conjunctive, they both need to be satisfied. 9.02A1, if separate proceedings were brought by or against each of them, some common question of law or fact would arise in all the proceedings, and All rights to relief claimed in the proceeding, whether they're joint, several or alternative, are in respect of or arise out of the same transaction or series of transactions, and that is on the one hand, or where the court before or after the joinder gives leave to do so. So you'll need to identify whether it is a situation under 9.02A1 and 2 or B. You might need to apply for leave under 9.02B if your client, plaintiffs or defendants, 
presumably plaintiffs, if you were talking about permissive joinder at this stage, either there was, if separate proceedings were brought by or against them, some common question of law or fact would arise in all the proceedings, or all rights to relief claimed in the proceeding are in respect of or arise out of the same transaction or series of transactions. So let me just say that a different way if it hasn't completely made sense. The first scenario where permissive joinder may permit two or more persons joined to be joined as plaintiffs or two or more persons to be joined as defendants is where both of the particulars of 9.02a are met. Alternatively, under Regulation 9.02b, the court may give leave for permissive joinder and one of the scenarios which might give rise to you making an application for that permissive joinder for the court's leave is where you can satisfy one limb of A and not the other. So, for instance, your client might satisfy 9.02A2, all rights to relief to claim in the proceeding are in respect of or arise out of the same transaction or series of transactions, but not the first. Traditionally, 9.02A is construed strictly and 9.02B allows for the facilitative uh, alternative to that. Now, just looking at the reading guide, representative proceedings and class actions and so forth are not examined. So this is the extent of the facility for joinder, which is going to be examined according to that reading guide. Let's move on to 9.03, except by order of the court, where the plaintiff claims any relief to which any other person is entitled jointly with the plaintiff, All persons so entitled shall be parties to the proceeding and any person who does not consent to being joined as a plaintiff shall be made a defendant. So if it's apparent from the fact pattern you're told that more than one plaintiff is jointly entitled to relief, such as in the unusual situation where both plaintiffs are joint tenants of a property, then that is not a circumstance of permissive joinder. That's going to be compulsory joinder and joinder of necessary parties under 9.03. If one of the joint tenants wishes to sue and the other joint tenant does not, then the second joint tenant shall be made a defendant. Now, the converse is not true. So under 9.032, if the plaintiff claims relief against a defendant who is liable jointly with some other person and also liable severally, that other person need not be made a defendant in the proceeding. 9.033, where people persons are liable jointly but not severally under a contract and the plaintiff in respect of that contract claims against some but not all of those persons, the court may stay the proceeding against the other persons so liable are added as defendants. So look to the terms of the contract or look to the bases of liability if it turns, and a partnership is another example of this. If it is said that the defendants to the cause of action are responsible jointly, they must be joined or else the court may stay the proceeding under 9.033. But if it's said that the defendants are liable jointly and severally, then the other person need not be made a defendant to the proceeding. 9.04 allows there to be an order from the court that there be separate trials or the exclusion of a claim or other remedies where a joinder of claims or of parties may embarrass or delay the trial of the proceeding or cause prejudice to any party or is otherwise inconvenient. 
So note the existence, please, of 9.04, so that even if permissive joinder seems to favour the joinder of different claims involving the same plaintiff and defendant, which is 9.01, or different parties, 9.02, the court, of course, still has the capacity to order separate trials or exclusion of claim or other remedies under 9.04. You just need to look at whether it might cause embarrassment or delay or prejudice or other, other inconvenience. 9.05 indicates that the proceeding won't be defeated simply by the misjoinder or, or non-joinder of any party or person, and the court may determine all questions in the proceeding so far as they affect rights and interests. This, among other things, indicates that if um, a plaintiff commences proceedings, for instance, and fails to join an appropriate party or misjoins an inappropriate party, the proceedings have commenced and so, for instance, limitation of actions, there won't be adverse limitation of actions consequences. And here I'll add the possibly gleeful note that limitation of actions in that complex area is another area of law that is not in the reading guide and on that basis, fortunately for me, I won't take you through those complex provisions. Now, each of the provisions that I've discussed so far as I've introduced involves joinder, which is from the outset of the issuing of the writ, for instance. 9.06 refers to that addition, removal or substitution of party at a later stage. So let's assume, for instance, the plaintiff has sued the defendant and wishes then to add D2. At any stage of a proceeding, the court may order that a, any person who is not a proper or necessary party can cease to be a party. So that might be the situation. I've introduced a scenario and now I'll vary it a little and then we'll come back to D1 and D2. So in uh, 9.06a, it might be the situation where the plaintiff has sued D1 and D2 and the court is minded to order that D2 is not proper or necessary. So the order that can be made under 9.06a is that D2 cease to be a party. Now, returning to the situation I'd introduced where P sues D1, and it turns out that there should be D2 or other. Um, under 9.06b, the court may order any of the following be added as a party. So B1 is a person who ought to have been joined as a party or whose presence before the court is necessary to ensure that all questions in the proceeding are effectually and completely determined and adjudicated upon, or a person between whom and any party to the proceeding there may exist a question arising out of or relating to or connecting with any claim in the proceeding, which it's just and convenient to determine as between that party and that party as well as the parties to the proceeding. So that allows the addition of D2 into proceedings under 9.06b. And lastly, 9.06c, if D2 needs to be substituted in for D1, then that is the last of the orders that can be made under 9.06. 9.07 uh, indicates the procedure for addition of party, um, which you can have a look at. And 9.08 governs the situation where the defendant is dead at commencement of proceeding and proceedings, as you'll remember, are commenced by the filing of the writ. So have a look at that proceeding in that happily rather unusual circumstance that arises where a cause of action has been raised against the estate of a deceased person. 9.09 also relates to the situation um, on the death or bankruptcy of a defendant and permits change of party. So you can have a look at that if the scenario arises. And 9.10 allows for 
an order effectively bringing a trial to an end on the death of a party if there has been no substitution for another party and the the matter can't otherwise proceed. 9.11 relates to amendment of proceedings after change of party. Um, So in the event that you are assessed on 9.06 or 9.08, particularly 9.06, which was addition, substitution uh, or removal, you'll see that the writ or the originating process, primarily the writ needs to be amended and then it needs to be essentially re-served. 9.12 allows for the consolidation of two or more proceedings pending in the court. So this is different. So far, uh, we've discussed joinder and addition. So the idea was in each of those scenarios that P1, P2, D1 and D2 have all of the issues adjudicated in the same proceeding, the same trial. 9.12 allows two or more proceedings which introduce some common question of law or fact or the rights to relief claimed therein are in respect of or arise out of the same transaction or series of transactions or for any other reason it's desirable to make an order for the court to order that the proceedings be consolidated so that they're tried in the same proceeding or to be tried at the same time or one immediately after the other and may order that one of them be stayed until after the determination of any other of them. So consolidation would be in the situ- be a situation where we don't have P1 and P2 versus D1 and D2. Instead, we would have P1 versus D1, semicolon, P2 versus D2. But the judge, judge and jury, less commonly charged with the responsibility of adjudicating one of the processes if there's been a consolidation for hearing on the same occasion, would then proceed to hear both of them because of that issue, existence of common questions of law or common questions of fact, or the rights to relief claimed were in respect of or arise out of the same transaction or series of transactions. So that concludes Order 9, and we now move on to Order 10. It applies only to proceedings created by writ, which I'm encouraging you to focus on in any event. Now, in relation to Order 10, counterclaim is permitted. So we're now moving on from the scenario where the plaintiff has initiated the claim to the point at which the defendant has received notification of the writ by way of service and the defendant is considering how to respond. We start with counterclaim 10.02. A defendant who has a claim against the plaintiff counterclaims in the proceeding. And the way that it works is that 9.01, which, as you may remember, involves that uh, multiplicity of allegations made between the two parties, allows both proceedings to take place uh, simultaneously. So 10.02, sub rule 2, rule 9.01 applies to a counterclaim as if the plaintiff were the defendant and the defendant were the plaintiff. So as I've previously mentioned now possibly a couple of times, in the counterclaim, D becomes P and P becomes D. They're independent proceedings. So for instance, if uh, the parties were able to settle in P versus D, then that does not automatically extinguish the counterclaim. So they run parallel to one another. And the format is 10.023. A defendant who counterclaims shall plead the defendant's defence and counterclaim in one document called a defence and counterclaim. So, so far we have had P issuing a writ 
and a defendant who is sufficiently aggrieved by the plaintiff's behaviour that they want to initiate their own claim will file and serve a single document being a defence which responds to the writ and a counterclaim which um, though I'm oversimplifying, becomes the uh, writ in that counterclaim. A counterclaim under 10.03 may name a second defendant. Um, so now um, it would be easier if I could use my hands to explain this, cultural <laughs> considerations included. A defendant may join with the plaintiff as defendant to the counterclaim any other person, whether a party to the proceeding or not who, if the defendant were to bring a separate proceeding, could be properly joined with the plaintiff as a party in accordance with Rule 9.02. So let's say for the sake of argument that the plaintiff and the defendant were involved in a workplace contract, but that might also involve, let's say, property rights. So the plaintiff has sued the defendant in contract, and that's P versus D. The defendant opposes that, and that's the defence, and the defendant uh, elects to counterclaim P and P2. So the counterclaim on that basis would bring in P2, provided that P and, and well, is not P2, by that stage they're D2 effectively because, of course, they're only involved in the counterclaim but they need to meet the rules of permissive joinder. So in order for the defendant to be able to counterclaim against the plaintiff and a third party, for the third party to be drawn into the proceeding, going back to 9.02, there needs to be some common question of law between the plaintiff and D2. There needs to be some common question of fact or all rights to relief claimed in the proceeding are in respect of or arise out of the same transaction or series of transactions. Now, what happens after counterclaim is uh, set down by Rule 10.04. So if a defendant joins a person as defendant to the counterclaim, so in this case we have the D2, the defence and counterclaim then contains a second title of the proceeding. So deep procedure, we're right in the darkness here. So the defence and counterclaim needs to set out the second title being who is plaintiff to the counterclaim and who are defendants to the counterclaim and the requirements for service under 10.042 are listed. This is a very specific procedure invoked where there's not a simple counterclaim, there's a more complex counterclaim because there is a second defendant then to the proceeding. 10.05 indicates that rule of procedure that the counterclaim is tried at the trial of the claim of the plaintiff unless the court otherwise orders. So another little indicium of just and efficient resolution to proceedings and a cost-effective is that the plaintiff and the defendant and the defendant and the plaintiff in the counterclaim will proceed in the same trial unless, for instance, the court considers, such as in the case of prejudice, if there were a jury trial or other, they need to take place successively. 10.06 permits the court to order similar sorts of remedies, um, separate trials, exclusion of claims, striking out counterclaim, if a counterclaim may embarrass or delay the trial of the claim of the plaintiff or cause prejudice to any party or otherwise can't be conveniently be tried with that claim. So just as in the case of permissive joinder where there was the, the power of the court to order some form of severance or exclusion, likewise in the case of a counterclaim, the court still does retain that power if it turns out that the, the two can't meaningfully be tried together and justice be done.
and 10.07, where the defendant by the defendant's defence admits the claim of the plaintiff and counterclaims, the court must stay the original proceeding until the counterclaim is disposed of. It's a very opaque provision, but I had happily already foreshadowed the fact pattern that might give rise to that. So let's say there's P versus D, which is the claim, and then D versus P, the counterclaim. But in the defence and counterclaim, the defendant says, yes, I admit responsibility entirely of P versus D, but let's shift to the counterclaim. The order that the court will make is staying P versus D. There's no longer a live issue with respect to responsibility. And then let's move to try the counterclaim. C10.08, so we're now at the end of many of the operative provisions. A counterclaim can proceed even if judgment is given for the plaintiff in the original proceeding or the original proceeding is stayed, discontinued or dismissed. So that bears out that point that the counterclaim has a life independent to the claim. And if there is the plaintiff, if there is a scenario under 10.09 where the plaintiff wins on P versus D and the defendant wins on the counterclaim D versus P, the court can offset the balance. <laughs> so if the plaintiff achieves a judgment debt of $100 and the defendant achieves a judgment debt of $200, then the order of the court may simply be that the plaintiff pays the defendant $100. All right, so the last uh, provision in this sequence is third-party notice. So we talked about, of course, counterclaims, unforgettable, P versus D, D versus P. A third-party notice is where we start with P versus D and the defendant's response to that writ is to respond to the plaintiff but also to join a third party, which creates a situation where we have P versus D and the third party procedure then creates a situation where D becomes P in a new case but it's P versus third party. So the difference between a counterclaim and a third party notice is instead of P versus D, D versus P, instead we have P versus D, D versus third party and D becomes the plaintiff on the third party procedure. So under 11.01, if a defendant claims as a person not already a party to the proceeding, uh, a contribution or indemnity or any relief or remedy relating to or connected with the original subject matter of the proceeding and substantially the same as some relief or remedy claimed by the plaintiff, or that any question relating to or connected with the original subject matter of the proceeding, should be determined not only as between P and D, but also as between either or both of them and the third party, then the defendant may join the third party as a party to the proceeding and make the claim against that third party by filing and serving a third party notice. So 11.01, the commencement of, there's a jurisdictional connection, which is set out in 11.01 A, B or C. And the procedural initiation of that process is the defendant filing and serving a third party notice. The form of such a notice is in Form 11A and it's endorsed with a statement of claim. So that requires the defendant to set out the particulars of what is claimed against the third party. And we'll go through statements of claim, of course, in much closer detail shortly. 11.03, as far as notice is concerned, um, there are the requirements for notice because we haven't looked at order five. I might need to make a backtrack in relation to time limits. But the third party notice sets out the time in which the third party may file an appearance, which is specified in the balance. 
And 11.04, the way that it works is that if the third-party notice is commenced, then the third party becomes a party to the proceeding and the uh, way that the court might label it would become P versus D1 and D2. Um, the way that it works is 11.04, the third party notice is filed and served on the third party in the same manner as originating process. And happily, the rules for service are also not included for assessment. Please note 11.05 time limits, though we haven't looked at time limits for service of um, writ and endorsement statement of claim. 11.05 outlines the time limits for filing and service of a third party notice. Given the fact that you haven't been asked specifically to study up on the time limits for service of the writ and the statement of claim, I won't take you through it in any detail, save and accept under 11.05. One, the defendant must first serve a defence. So here we have writ and statement of claim to which I'll return, followed by the defence. Now, if the defendant was counterclaiming, that would be the defence and counterclaim, but they're not counterclaiming. We've moved on to third-party notice. They must file their defence before they can start the third-party notice sequence. Under 11.06, the court may give notice to other parties, direct that notice is given. And under 11.07, the requirements for service are listed. 11.08 relates for filing of appearance by a third party and 11.09 outlines the procedural requirements for the filing and service of a defence by a third party. Note 11.10, this will be mind-bogglingly complicated if the exam situation were to raise it. Note the third party has a right to counterclaim. So under 11.10 in this unusual situation, the third party may raise a counterclaim against the defendant. And 11.11 relates to default by third party. Okay, so have a look at the balance of the provisions in relation to 11.12 and 11.13. 11.14 allows for judgment between the defendant and the third party. So we're dealing with the situation where, of course, it's still P versus D, D versus third party. So the court at or after the trial of the proceeding or on the determination otherwise than by trial, for instance, if the matter settles, can give judgment for the defendant by whom the third party was joined against the third party or for the third party against that defendant. So that is 11.14. 11.15 allows for fourth party and other claims and see also 11.16. All right, so that concludes Order 11. Order 13 is the next of the provisions in the sequence, but just out of an abundance of caution, I'm just going to take you back to Order 5 because in order for those orders to make sense, even though this has not been listed as one of the examinable orders in the rules, I'll just note it for your attention in relation to the specifics of the statement of claim, because it would appear to me that though we've talked about the writ, we haven't included the endorsement, which sets out um, what is actually claimed. So I will um, take the responsibility of just adding that in. Regulation 5.04, endorsement of claim on writ. The writ shall contain an endorsement of claim. It needs to either to be a statement of claim or if a statement of claim is to follow at a later stage a statement sufficient to give 
with reasonable particularity notice of the nature of the claim and the cause thereof and of the relief or remedy sought in the proceeding. So at the very minimum, if a statement of claim is going to follow, the writ needs to include 5.042b, that statement sufficient to telegraph to the defendant the nature of the claim, the cause thereof, and of the relief or remedy sought in the proceeding, or alternatively, a full statement of claim. If you're interested, 5.05 is the rule relating to what an originating motion must specify, and then the requirements for service follow. In relation to the statement of claim, that is a rather, okay, I'll, I'll just try to deal with it in the most compressed way that I possibly can. The statement of claim will ordinarily either be included in the writ or will follow, and that includes a much more detailed recitation of those matters, the nature of the claim, the cause thereof, and of the relief or remedy sought in the proceeding, and will do further drafting as time goes on and we examine more provisions. So otherwise you might be left thinking um, that the writ uh, is enough. Pleadings I'm going to introduce and then we will take a break before the next class. Um, Order 13 includes pleadings and it might be a responsibility to draft a very small section of a pleading, um, but that's ordinarily not the case in the exam. So, so far, the pleadings to which I've referred include the statement of claim that I've just introduced via 5.04 and also the defence, the counterclaim and the, any particulars of the third party notice, uh, including the way that it's drafted. Every pleading shall bear on its face the description of the proceeding and the date on which it's served. So that's 13.01. Note 13.012, this is important if you have a drafting exercise. The pleading shall be divided into paragraphs numbered consecutively, so far so good, and each allegation so far as practicable shall be contained in a separate paragraph. 13.013, if it's settled by counsel, it shall be signed by that counsel, and if it's not so settled, it'll be signed by the solicitor, and if there's no legal representative, by the party. 13.02, Every pleading shall contain in the summary form a statement of all the material facts on which the party relies, not the evidence, just the material facts. And where any claim, defence or answer of the party arises under statute, it needs to identify that specific provision and it must state specifically any relief or remedy claimed. It may raise a point of law. It may plead a conclusion of law if the material facts supporting the conclusion are pleaded. 13.03 relates to the effect of any document or conversation if material. So it, it doesn't need, uh, so if, for instance, as part of that discussion of the summary form of the statement of material facts, then you need to rely on a document or a conversation, so such as in relation to a contract where it might be that some is oral and some is documentary then the effect of that document, the effect of the conversation needs to be pleaded as briefly as possible. The words do not need to be used unless those words are themselves material, 13.03. Moving on to the balance of the provisions, you can note 13.04, 5 and 6. 13.07 is an important one. It relates to pleading subsequent to any statement of claim. 
So if there's been a defence filed, for instance, and the plaintiff wishes to uh, take issue with a matter raised in the defence, then the party must plead specifically any fact or matter which the party alleges makes any claim or defence of the opposite party not maintainable or, if not pleaded specifically, might take the opposite party by surprise or raises questions of fact not arising out of any preceding pleading. And have a look for 13.072 relating to recovery of land and exemplary damages, 13.073. 13.08 is for noting. 13.09 allows inconsistent allegations of fact if the pleading makes clear that the allegations are pleaded in the alternative. So though it does make for more complicated drafting, certainly there is the provision under 13.09, let's say there's a dispute as to whether the contract, the written contract is exhaustive or alternatively it was varied orally. So the way that those allegations of fact would be set out would be on the first basis it is maintained that the contract blah, 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 blah. And further, and in the alternative, then you can set out that the contract did not uh, contain the entire agreement and it was supplemented by oral variation and you set, set that out as well. 13.10 requires particulars of pleading and this is an important provision occasionally for the exam but also in practice. What needs to be included in every pleading from the statement of claim all the way through to the final document is necessary particulars of any fact or matter. So basically the claim that is made under um, the law applied to the facts of the case needs to identify the facts of the case with sufficient particularity, 13.102, to enable the opposite party to plead, to define the questions for trial or to avoid surprise at trial. So once those necessary particulars are pleaded, then there will be great difficulty if it turns out that the uh, with the other party having um, crafted their response based on those particulars, a new or, or missing particular is sought to be relied upon at trial. And 13.10, in addition to that global proposal, is 13.10.3. Um, so every pleading shall contain particulars of any misrepresentation, fraud, breach of trust, willful de default or undue influence, or disorder or disability of the mind, malice, fraudulent intention or other condition of the mind, including knowledge or notice, which is alleged. Under 13.10.4, if it is a bodily injury damages claim, then there's a requirement that it states particulars with dates and amounts of lost earnings, particulars of any loss of earning capacity resulted from the injury, the date of the party's birth, and the name and address of each of the employers. 13.105 relates to libel, so that is for noting. Under 13.11, the court can order a party to serve on the other party further or better particulars of any fact or matter stated in pleadings. But the court must not make that order, 13.112, before service of the defence unless the order is necessary or desirable to enable the defendant to plead or for some other special reason. So usually the writ and statement of claim are intended to speak for themselves, including the degree of particularity, but further and better particulars can be ordered by the court in those uh, unusual circumstances, uh, if necessary, uh, for the defence to run its course. Under 13.12, admissions and denials, um, let's assume there's been a statement of claim that sets out certain allegations of fact. 
If they are not admitted, the defence must deny that specifically or um, the court may necessarily imply that. So what that means is an allegation of fact if made, so the existence of, of an agreement between the parties, unless the defence specifically denies that or does not admit that, or unless there's some other reason why joinder of issue would operate, then it's taken to be admitted. So instructions are needed and particularity is also needed in drafting to indicate whether matters are denied or not admitted. The difference between denial and non-admission is that um, if the defendant specifically does not accept that there was an agreement between the parties, that is a denial, if it's a matter beyond the defendant's knowledge or capacity to reply to, then that is not admitted. So that's the difference between the two. The last point under 13.123 is an allegation of damage and the allegation as to the amount of damages is taken to be denied unless specifically admitted. 13.13, you can't file a pleading joining, just specifically joining issue. So the way that responses to the first uh, pleading work is that they need to be specifically denied or joined. All right, so looking at the balance of the uh, provisions of Order 13C, 13.15, a counterclaim, of course, operates as if it were a statement of claim. So the order applies to the counterclaim. The order applies to a defence to counterclaim as if they were a uh, statement of claim and defence. And 14, uh, sorry, we've gone way beyond what we need to um, in the spirit of enthusiasm. So I will retract reference to Order 14 for fear that we will talk about something that's not examinable. So that was the last of the examinable provisions in that run. Now, in our next discussion, we'll start with Order 22 and move on to Order 23, which relates to summary judgment and the application by plaintiff for summary judgment. This can be cross-referenced with the summary judgment rules in the Civil Procedure Act, sections 60 to 65. So if you just wanted to get 10 minutes ahead of where we're up to, that's what we're going to be looking at in the next discussion. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.